Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, October the 27th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today, Jennifer Bray is in studio and Pat Leahy is in Brussels. Hello to you both. Good morning. Bonjour. Pat, you're in Brussels, of course, because there's an EU summit this week and uh, all our headlines, including across the front of the Irish Times this morning, are about the main item on the agenda, which is the current uh, war between Israel and Hamas. Yeah, so what happened uh, here, Hugh, was the leaders agreed a text last night after several hours of wrangling and days and days of wrangling by diplomats to come up with an agreed statement. And what a lot of EU countries wanted to do was to call for... call for a ceasefire, humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. But that was, um, that language was considered to, to call for a ceasefire was considered by some countries to be uh, insufficiently sensitive to Israel's right to defend itself. So the language after, as I say, several hours of wrangling, the language that they alighted upon last night was um, for them to call for uh, humanitarian pauses was the term they used, which in effect means ceasefire. Talking to us on his way in yesterday, Tishak Leo Varadkar said, look, he didn't really care, you know, what language they used uh, uh, in in the statement. What was important was its effect. So they, they agreed this last night. They'll move on to other things today. But I, I, I think, you know, I mean, the, there's no doubt that the from the very start of this, you know, there have been discordant noises coming from various parts uh, of the uh, of the EU. This summit was an attempt to stress EU unity on the subject, but in the attempt to get unity, it meant that there had to be a lot of compromise uh, along the way, and that's as far as they could go. Humanitarian pauses was as, was as far as they could go um, to to get agreement. So no overt call for a ceasefire, but effectively a suggestion that there should be a ceasefire. And how? What, what way do the divisions work here? Is is it? Are people right when they say that Ireland is? Um, quite an outlier here in terms of its, its, its more pro-Palestinian position than many other countries. Um, who else would be in the Irish camp there? And I, I, I suppose I'm right in saying, am I, that Germany are kind of in the opposing camp to that? Yeah, look, broadly speaking, yes, that is, that, that is correct. I don't think, though, it would be correct to call Ireland an outlier. It is true that Ireland is amongst the most pro-Palestinian of EU member states and is regarded certainly by Israel as the most anti-Israel or one of the most anti-Israel member states. Um, Irish diplomats would say that they treat each, you know, question or each issue on its own merits. But there's no question but that Ireland is considered to be, you know, amongst the most pro-Palestinian of EU states. Other states that um, would tend to line up um, in alliance with Ireland on that side of the argument would tend to be Spain, Portugal, Cyprus, um, 
maybe Sweden, um, and then on the other side, Germany and Austria, always very strongly pro-Israel. I guess there's, and Tisha Leverker made a couple of references to this yesterday in his doorsteps, uh, you know, to that being, I suppose, a, a legacy of, uh, of, of, of the Holocaust in those countries in the 30s and 40s. Um, a lot of the Eastern European states tend uh, to be, Central and Eastern European states would tend to be quite um, pro-Israel for, I suppose, a variety of reasons, some of them historic, some of them, I suppose, got to do with the fact that they tend to be very pro-Western and Israel, of course, identify very much with the, uh, with the United States. Um, France would previously have been seen to be uh, in a more in a sort of a pro-Palestinian sort of wing, but according to some diplomats that I spoke to about this yesterday, that began to change a little bit um, under Nicolas Sarkozy and hasn't really reverted uh, back. So, you know, I mean, you can't draw very clear lines on the, you know, pro-Palestine, pro-Israel camp, but what you can see is that countries tending to line up on uh, on. on, on the same side of the argument. And uh, and that, of course, makes it harder for the EU to, with very differing perspectives, makes it harder for the EU to agree a common position on it. And Emmanuel Macron, uh, as is his want, has been quite interventionist. You know, he's, he's, he's talked quite a lot and he's talking to quite a lot of people. Yeah, he has. And of course, he visited Israel as well. But he's also been, you know, calling for humanitarian ceasefire as well. And there's also talk, and this was inserted in the conclusions, the agreed conclusions, um, as uh, following pressure from the Spanish. There's, and it's, 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 in the, it's in the conclusions, there's also a call for a peace conference. And, um, uh, and you know, I, I think that's something that has kind of pretty widespread support across the board. I mean, it is interesting, I think, and a lot of people from an Irish perspective looking at it will wonder, you know, what is the problem with calling for a ceasefire? But, you know, for a lot of, for a lot of countries, the sensitivity towards Israel's needs and Israel's position is so acute that even calling for a ceasefire um, is perceived by some of them to be uh, to impact on their support for Israel's right to defend itself. While understanding that, Jen, looking at the kind of footage coming out of Gaza over the over the last couple of weeks or or more now, but particularly some of the some of the stuff over the last over the last days, the and the even taking into account that we can't necessarily trust numbers that come out of the Hamas uh, administration in in Gaza, there is no doubt there's a horrific loss of life going on as we speak and an awful lot of the people who are dying, the vast majority of them are not members of Hamas and a huge amount of them are children, women and other civilians. Yeah, I think if you look at the the most recent death toll uh, in terms of Gaza, I think it's upwards of 6,500, probably around about uh, 7,000 at this stage. Um, and I think on the other side, uh, in, in terms of after the Hamas attacks on Israel, that death toll seems to be in and around 1,500 upwards of that. And so you can see the toll on on either side. And I think a lot of us kind of are, it's an interesting one because this is not the first war that's playing out on social media, but it's the first time I've seen, I think we've been able to see ourselves, you know, on our phones or on social media, um, the depth of suffering. Um, and I think we're all, honestly, genuinely horrified by it. Um, that's why I find this EU summit interesting because 
what people see from the outside, I think, is this wrangling over words, you know, should it be a pause or should it be pauses? What's the difference between a pause and pauses? Why not just put in ceasefire? But as Pat says, there are um, sensitivities in different countries. And I think Leo Varadkar on his way into the summit was talking about how we have to be cognizant of that and about how we could be talking about countries here who have positions because they had populations um, who would have had, you know, maybe Jewish population or have been involved in what happened to Jewish people and to understand why Jewish people felt that they had this ancestral claim um, to Israel. And I think that he has been trying to kind of um, have a delicate balance there between at home, you know, you've got Sinn Féin saying very clearly uh, I think their exact call in the doll was for an immediate and full ceasefire. Um, and Leo Varadkar kind of did a little bit of mansplaining to Mary Lou Macdonald during the week about um, what it takes to be a Taoiseach and what it's like when you go over to these EU summits. And he was saying, it's not you don't just go over and have your press conference and say, we condemn this and we condemn that and your sound bites and then leave. He was saying, you go over and you have to use your powers of persuasion. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing play out in the EU. Um, I also think that it is an important signifier of the European Union finally managing to come out with a collective message and a coherent message. And given what we talked about there, those historical sensitivities in different countries across the EU, whether it be Germany, whether it be France, um, I think that is important. Um, I think the wrangling over the words, I think you had the um, Leo Varadkar obviously saying it, Luxembourg's outgoing Prime Minister uh, Xavier Battelle also said, I don't give a damn how we call this um, as long as we come up with an agreed text. I think that's good. I think the next focus will be, OK, you know, here's what you're calling for. Where does this end? What does that result in? Does this actually have... Uh, an impact. Well, I mean, I think that's a, that's a very good question. And people do disparage this kind of horse trading or high, high politics or whatever you want to call it when, when people are dying, Pat. But this is the reality of how conflicts, you know, are, are brought to an end in a way. And there are layers of global real politics going on at the moment, including in the, in the Israeli assault on Gaza itself. You know, one reads, you know, Qatar is saying that, that a ceasefire could... Uh, could could lead to the release of some of the two hundred or so hostages who are who are still the who are still there in Israel. There seem to be questions about what Israel's military strategy is going to be. We all expected a land assault a week or more ago, and that still hasn't happened. So there's an awful lot to play for and an awful lot going on at the moment. Yeah, and I think that the EU wants to have a uh, a role in that, but that will become difficult, I think, for the EU, especially if a land invasion goes ahead. It's I have my doubts that the kind of difficult consensus that was arrived by EU leaders late last night would survive a land invasion and presumably the surge in casualties that you would see that. But there's no doubt that the EU collectively wants to play a role in that, not just, I suppose, in its capacity as, you know, one of the biggest funders of the Palestinian uh, Authority, one of the biggest humanitarian donors to um, not just Gaza, but also the the West Bank. Um, But how it can manage to do that without, unless it maintains that unity that's that was so difficult to achieve and people will have seen over the last couple of weeks how divided the EU was in its initial responses to uh, the crisis. I think it's going to be quite difficult um, for it and I think, you know, ultimately, you know, the, 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 the nation states that make up the EU's 27 members want to maintain, most of them at least, want to maintain their own independence of, of, of voice and action on, uh, on foreign policy. It, we asked 
teach about this on his way into uh, the day two of the uh, of the summit today, and he said, you know, of course it's going to be every EU statement is going to be uh, compromised, so you can't go as far as individual countries might go. The alternative, he said, to that is having a common foreign policy that is decided by majority voting. But we would have to, we would all have to agree to be, uh, you know, to uh, to being outvoted on occasion in terms of our of, of European foreign policy at that stage. He said he didn't think people wanted that um, either. So. I think it's going to be quite difficult uh, for the EU over the coming weeks particularly. And I think that sort of brittle, that brittle unity that we saw achieved last night is going to come under pressure. I mean, one of the outcomes of that is that uh, Europe doesn't hold as much sway in the world as perhaps its economic size might uh, might otherwise indicate. But, I mean, I, listening to Joe Biden, who does hold a lot of sway in these issues at the moment, explicitly drawing a connection between this conflict and, and, and the war in Ukraine, I mean, I think partly for his own internal reasons, you know, he faces a fight with a new a new speaker in Congress who is, who is against funding, continuing to fund the... Uh, fund the Ukrainian military effort there. So it makes sense for him to draw those two together. But presumably, there, I mean, there are parallels as well as differences, aren't there? And Ukraine is on the agenda at, at this week's summit too. Oh, very much so, yeah. And it's they, they were the leaders were addressed by Ukrainian President Zelensky yesterday and they will be having a discussion on Ukraine this morning. Um, several of the leaders, including Tisha, including uh, Betel and, and others, um, Kalas, the Estonian Prime Minister, uh, said the same thing uh, on a way in this morning, that they're, you know, what they have to be, you know, really careful not to do is to allow Ukraine to slip away from, to slip down the agenda. They're determined to keep a focus uh, on Ukraine and that means in terms of continuing to supply military aid but also continuing to uh, to look after Ukrainian refugees, continuing to supply you know the, the, the billions of euros that Ukraine needs to keep its state functioning in such difficult uh, circumstances you know and uh, you know that, that again you know that is facing challenges from within the uh, from within the EU the Slovakian uh, Slovakian elected a new government very much aligned with uh, Viktor Orban in, uh, in in Hungary and while it doesn't seem that Orban uh, and and his allies are, are going to seek to block further Ukrainian aid from uh, the EU it does represent a sort of further fracturing of uh, of the EU's position on Ukraine that leaders and I think when you see statements coming out uh, after the meeting today you will see you know, a very keen focus on, on you know, trying to maintain unity and uh, on, on Ukraine and on reassuring Ukrainians that, uh, that the EU will continue to uh, continue to support them. I mean, I suppose, you know, you talk about the EU's heft in the world. You mentioned it er- uh, earlier on. You know, Joe Biden has sent two aircraft carriers to, uh, to the Middle East, uh, you know, EU doesn't have its own aircraft carriers anyway and is unlikely to have them in the near future. Who was it? Was it um, Joseph Stalin who said, how many divisions has the Pope? Um, so it's a little bit, the European Union is, is a little bit like that. And actually to, to quote... Kind of Pope had the last laugh on that one though. He did. Um, I think, but uh, our subsequent Pope had, okay. uh, had the last laugh on that one. To, to quote uh, another quotation from Stalin's arch enemy, Leon Trotsky said, um, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And have these twin events basically shoved probably quite a serious domestic agenda for the European Union just down the lists that nobody's paying any attention to it or are there other other big non-military related 
questions on the table at this summit? Nah, it's been completely dominated by the the, the Gaza question. Um, and uh, you know, Pascal Donoghue, in his capacity as president of the Eurogroup, uh, is uh, is over here. He and Christine Lagarde, who's the head of the uh, European Central Bank, are briefing leaders um, this morning on financial issues, inflation in the eurozone, the sort of cost of living crisis that all governments have been grappling uh, have, have been grappling with. But really that's all been blown out of the water by the Middle East, which is all anybody is talking about here. Mm, interesting. And Ukraine is kind of is on the domestic agenda as well, Jennifer. I want to turn to another story which Jack Horgan Jones, our colleague, uh, broke earlier this week about um, apparently the biggest fight that has happened at cabinet level since this government was formed and it centres around the future treatment of Ukrainian refugees. Yeah, this is such an interesting story because um, it emerged last week that uh, Jack had this story as well, that the government was considering time limiting supports to Ukrainian refugees. Um, So this would be a 90 day time limit on accommodation and potentially limits on the social welfare benefits that they receive. Um, And then what happened over the weekend was was more reporting on it. And then Cabinet met and Jack had that story you mentioned where it was kind of a very divisive, heated argument. So what's and this is unusual, isn't it? Because usually yeah. the fights are had or things are trashed out before they get to cabinet. That's the idea, isn't it? Oh, there's a whole series of different uh, uh, fences you have to hop before you get to a cabinet row. So you know, the, there's a senior officials group. They'll trash out policy um, ideas. Then it goes to a cabinet committee where all the ministers are, and they will further discuss it. And then it will go to the leaders the night before the cabinet, and they'll sign off on it. And then it goes to the cabinet. So by the time it's gone to cabinet, all the heat's gone out of it. So it is quite rare to have um, words across the table. Now, Leo Varadkar said reports of the row are much exaggerated, but of course he'd say that, you know. Um, of course he would. Of course he would say that. Um, it's an interesting one because, believe it or not, I, I wrote this story on January 30th this year that they were going to time limit um, supports. What happened later that day was that, I think it was Joe O'Brien went on the radio when Claire Byrne and was asked about the story that we had in the paper. The the, the junior Green Minister. Yes, exactly, the Minister of State for Integration. And he was asked about the story, you know, the Irish Times are reporting X, Y and Z. And he he didn't outright deny it, but he seemed very um, uncomfortable. I thought he seemed very uncomfortable on the radio. And it was kind of, it was kind of a denial. And I remember thinking, what's all that about? And I think now it's really clear that what's actually happened is this proposal has been on the table since January. and obviously these disagreements and this tension have this has been in existence all year long. And the thing that's changed is that obviously now we'll be receiving, you know, this phrase beneficiaries of temporary protection, um, Ukrainian refugees um, with entitlements until 2025. That directive is extended. And I think that there has been a realisation in the last few months that they actually need to get moving on this proposal and that those divisions cannot be left to simmer behind the scenes. It has to be brought out into the light. And what are the divisions? Mm, What are the divisions? Indeed. So it seems to me a lot of it centres around, okay, if you look at it on the face of it, Micheál Martin saying that um, this could have an effect upon the housing crisis or I think his argument to Cabinet was, what about the education of children um, uh, Ukrainian refugees if they're going to be put in this centre or whatever for 90 days and then moved elsewhere. So just to be clear, as far as we understand it, we are told also that none of this has been, you know, locked down in yeah. any way whatsoever. But the broad outlines are that at a future point, at some point in the future, the system would change so that Ukrainian people who arrived seeking seeking shelter under this EU uh, system would be given accommodation for 90 days in a centre of some sort. And then after that, 
they're kind of on their own? Yeah, that basically now... What the line is coming from government now is that it's actually a lot more nuanced than that. It's more mm. gradual. Um, maybe there'll be a tapering off of supports. Maybe there'll be exceptions, you know, for vulnerable groups. Um, maybe there'll be a pathway towards education. But that's all maybe, maybe, maybe right now. The only things you've mentioned are the concrete things that have come out. So these are the arguments. Honestly, I think, and this is me being completely cynical, OK, in, in my older age. Surely not. Surely to God I am being. Um, I wonder, is some of this political hot potato you know, because we're coming up to an election. And is it that instead of having people living uh, in emergency accommodation under Roderick O'Gorman, they'll instead be living in emergency accommodation under Dara O'Brien. So the the problem's being brought from his department over to housing. And we know there's been tension about where the responsibility should be for this crisis. I just wonder. Um, That was certainly the way I read it when I read Jack's story, Pat, was that that was what it was, which is a pretty unhelpful way of framing what is a really serious challenge for the state. Yeah, I mean, Jennifer's right. This has been knocking around for quite some time and it is a conversation that has been going on within government at the very highest level, um, as far as I can tell, uh, for a long time because of the capacity constraints that that have been you know, reached and surpassed uh, in terms of offering accommodation to uh, to Ukrainian refugees. And it is an accommodation question. It's not a money question. This isn't something that the state thinks it cannot afford. It is simply physical accommodations that um, that Ukrainian refugees... Um, Although, have, if I may come in, there, there is a bit element of money to it in the way that Leo Varadkar, for example, has framed it, which is the suggestion, and there's a lot of toing and froing about this, and there's a lot of complexity in it. But the suggestion that the, the, the benefits, the financial benefits which are available to Ukrainian refugees are better than they might get in other Western European countries and therefore they're more likely to come here and therefore obviously that they're also going to need to be accommodated. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely I think that's absolutely right. But it's not the cost of the social welfare payments sure. to Ukrainians that is exercising people in government. It is the fact that uh, that the generosity, as they have it, of those social welfare uh, payments is acting as a magnet for bringing Ukrainians uh, Ukrainians in. And these figure that government, uh, that people in government are using is like up to 30% of these people are coming not from Ukraine, but having, you know, spent time in another European country or coming on to Ireland. And the very heavy implication of that is that because they're getting, you know, more on social, more money on social welfare in Ireland than they would be uh, elsewhere, which if were to be true would be of course perfectly rational behavior for uh for for uh for anybody uh, to in, to engage in i think the difficulty for the government because it has so trumpeted both both at home and actually here in europe the generosity of its treatment of ukrainian refugees and proportionately the numbers that uh, that ireland has uh, accommodated which is far far greater than a lot of other countries particularly countries in western europe that it would be an embarrassing step for them to have to take to say look we're full can't take any more and some of these guys might have to go home yeah and there's also been a sort of line that the government has drawn which is you know which has to do with ireland's um, particularly individual form of neutrality, isn't there? Is that Ireland has sort of deflected some criticisms internationally of the fact that it isn't actually helping the Ukrainian government militarily or with resources in the same ways in the same way as other European countries are. But then it points to its very good record with with refugees as a sort of a, a shield against that. 
100%. That's very much what, what the, the, the stance of the Irish government has been taken in Brussels, where Irish neutrality and, and uh, has been, you know, creeping up the uh, agenda here. And we've talked about that uh, here before. But uh, the response that Ireland has been taking, because Ireland is talking about, you know, the and even at this morning's doorstep, uh, the Taoiseach was talking about the need to continue for the EU to continue supporting the EU militarily, economically, politically. Uh, but of course, Ireland is not doing any of that military stuff because of our tradition, uh, our, our, our traditional policy of neutrality when that comes up. As you say, Irish officials and uh, Irish ministers will say, but we're doing the divil and all when it comes to accommodating refugees. And it is true, you know, that uh, that the uh, that proportion of the Irish uh, acceptance of refugees has been much higher than lots of other places. Um, so to have to adjust that position now, I think, will be difficult and uh, difficult and embarrassing for the Irish government. But also, there's no doubt that they kind of want to get to the situation where uh, Ukrainian refugees go elsewhere, but they don't want to take the steps that bring that about, if that makes sense. I mean, Leo Varadkar was pretty blunt in the doll and and I think again in Brussels, Jen, about the fact that he talked about the, I mean, there's three, you know, there's, there's, there's several hundred people still arriving every week and if you add that up over the course of the next 12 months, that amounts to quite a large number and basically, he basically said they don't have the room for them and so something needs to be done about this and I could understand there's an implicit sense that there's a frustration on the part of Roderick Gorman and maybe his his colleagues in the Green Party who feel that this has just been, that addressing this problem has just been stalled at cabinet level and maybe that's why that blew up, if it did blow up this week. Yeah, that's 100% true. Um, I'm going to hit you with a barrage of thoughts. Please do. <laughs> so tell me to shut up whenever you want. Um, the first thing you mentioned was Leo Varadkar and the doll. I think this was a really important thing that happened this week that really struck me as... Now, maybe I've been caught snoozing as new. Um, he said in the doll basically that we're at capacity, um, quite bluntly. And to the best of my knowledge, uh, it is one of the first times that he has said that during... I think it, was, uh, it wasn't leaders' questions, it was directly afterwards... Um, because if you think back, like the line of the Irish government over the last couple of years has been, I certainly remember Michal Martin when it was put to him by different deputies, um, you know, where are we going to uh, house everybody? Where's all the accommodation? And he said, we can't, you know, give in to Vladimir Putin. If he hears the EU countries cannot accommodate Ukrainian refugees, then he's won. So there was always this reluctance to say that. And now it's been said. And I think that's really, really important. Um, because it, it was a kind of a racist trope at one point. Ireland is full. Hashtag, hashtag Ireland yeah. is full. And I think no politician, especially on the government benches, wants to say those words because then you've vindicated that movement. Nobody wants to do that because everybody agrees that the vast majority of people have been welcoming, you know, food and light and shelter and accommodation and all of that kind of stuff. The other thing I was going to say is you mentioned the, the, this pull factor, the idea that our um, supports are better than other European countries. They are. And we are an outlier in terms of hotel accommodation. We have, I think, if not the highest amount, one of the highest amounts of reliance on hotel accommodation. Actually, Sarka Pollock had a really interesting article during the week and she was saying that Ireland's reliance on hotel accommodation, state accommodation, 77%. That's really, really high. And she was saying that other EU countries, they really rely on private hosting arrangements, 80 to 90% of accommodation in Croatia, Cyprus, Latvia, Belgium, some parts of Belgium, Italy, I Germany. Mean, I'm interested by the Belgian example. I would have sort yeah. of expected that maybe in countries that were neighbouring Ukraine, whether you know um, that that would be the case. But it's actually parts of Western Europe as well. People are staying in other people's private homes. Yeah, and yeah. obviously countries neighbouring 
during um, Ukraine would have had Ukrainian connections, so that's mm. a little bit different. Um, and but I, I think there was from the get-go in other other countries a decision, an outright decision, not to rely on private accommodation or hotel accommodation, where we went straight to that. That was the first thing. Um, because there was a feeling that this was a temporary problem and now we know this is not a temporary issue. This is a long-term thing and the war is, is, is no, no sign of ending. And the last thing I wanted to say to you was on the pull factor. Um, there was an official in the Department of Justice said to me a year ago that when the government came up with their new plan to end direct provision, which is now totally blown out of the water, but when they came up with that plan and Roderick O'Gorman had this white paper and it basically the white paper set out how people who arrive here for direct provision will have a much better life effectively in owned or accommodation, etc. and how they get rid of these centres, that there was a feeling in the Department of Justice amongst loads of officials of, well, here we go, because this is sending out a message to the rest of the world that this is a great place to come and live. Um, now, I don't, I'm not casting any personal um, opinion it, it, on that. It's uh, a controversial yeah. uh, approach that that the question of pull factor. But I mean, is, logically, yeah. these things do exist. You know, people yeah. people have agency and they make decisions. You know, they have information yeah. about what's available in certain countries. And it? there's a yeah, there's a political thing as well. You know, we keep mentioning that we're possibly coming up. Well, we are coming up to an election year. Whether mm. there's GE general election in there, we don't know. But I think the government perhaps is becoming more and more cognizant of this. It's not even growing tension anymore. It exists in communities all around the country. Um, and even you talked about like Roderick O'Gorman feeling that he has all this responsibility and it should be in the Department of Housing and and actually there was a white paper that said it should be in the Department of Taoiseach it should be led by the Department of Taoiseach it never happened and that, that white paper has disappeared as well down the plug hole um, and I think that is a, a huge political issue um, and I, I don't think that they're going to take it off Roderick O'Gorman's plate today, tomorrow or the next day Okay, well, it's not going to go away either and something's going to have to be done about it if the Taoiseach is to be believed about about capacity. We'll leave it there for a moment just to remind you that if you're not already a subscriber to irishtimes.com, you really should do that. Go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe so you can read all the wonderful articles by, by Jennifer and by Pat and some more mediocre ones by me. I'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back. I wanted to talk, Jen, about a, um, a, a very interesting minor but interesting news story earlier in the week. Steve Baker, who's a um, sort of a fascinating figure. He was a, a Brexit ultra, the European Research Group, if people remember that, in the Conservative Party in the heyday of the of, of the Brexit wars, now a junior minister in the Northern Ireland office, was was, was speaking in, in Ireland. And he said two things. One was that he thought actually, in, in retrospect, the Brexit referendum should have required a supermajority of 60% in order to pass, in which case it's 52% vote yes. Britain would have remained in the European Union. So that was interesting. And then even more interesting, given his current position, he said that there should be a supermajority for Irish unity, that it should re- require a 60% um, majority. What do you think of that? Fascinating. Don't you just wish that you could like go on a time machine and take back his comments back to him a few years ago? You know, he led the Conservative Party's pro-Brexit uh, European research group. It's It's interesting that he's suddenly become very reflective. Um, about how divisive that, that campaign and, and the outcome of it obviously yeah, and was. more than anything else, he used that 50% majority to argue for the hardest possible Brexit. Exactly. Know? I know. It really is kind of through the looking glass stuff, isn't it? Um, but he, it's, it, do you know what? It's an interesting one. He didn't lick this one off a stone because I think Ian Paisley Jr. had a bill um, where he he didn't explicitly recommend a supermajority, but he did talk about this idea of starting a conversation about needing more than the 50 plus one. And even more interestingly than that, our very own Leo Varadkar has also said this. Now, he hasn't said supermajority, but he has said, obviously, the ideal would be 
far a lot more than 50 plus one because, you know, if you have, let's say, just under half of those uh, who voted not wanting to be part of a united Ireland, how divisive is that? And nobody wants to go back to a situation where we have not just political unrest, but obviously potential violence. Um, and I think we've got enough of that in the world right now. So the feeling is, I think, I, I kind of understand what he's saying. Like, it's actually just common sense. But obviously, he's kind of just talking from the top of his head. And maybe he's feeling a little bit guilty about everything because uh, Chris Heaton-Harris was out immediately afterwards and said there's been no change. Mm-hmm. No change to uh, uh, the, the British government policy on this and the rules in uh, the Good Friday Agreement are as they are. So, but it's an interesting idea and I would personally agree that you would want, I'm sorry, this is totally not the same thing, so um, don't give out to me. But think about the abortion referendum, right? That was described as a landslide referendum. And afterwards, nobody could doubt that this was the will of the Irish people to bring in this really divisive change. You would think, and that's just a, a social issue, not just a social issue, but you know what I mean? This is a massive, massive issue with that. And also, sorry, last thought, you're talking about the UK uh, in terms of leaving the EU, this is internal UK. This is, you know, their internal internal structures, centuries old, splitting up. It's even more inflammatory in some ways. I'll stop talking now. No, don't. Please, never never stop talking. Um, some of our listeners, Pat, may have heard me talking to Rory Stewart in our in our Wednesday podcast, and he was actually saying that, that, that there is an argument in certain circumstances when there's a huge constitutional change being discussed to go for a supermajority of some sort. He said, for example, that it would have made, in his view, it would have made sense on something like the Scottish independence referendum. But he also accepted that it was very different for a Northern Ireland minister to be putting this forward uh, on what is a settled matter under the terms of the Belfast Agreement. It's a simple majority which will which will lead to constitutional change. And also, to be honest, the Northern Ireland situation is extremely different from the Scottish one too. Is he just a bit of a loose cannon or are there maybe stirrings about something like this? Serious stirrings? The former, uh, uh, I think. I mean, I... Uh... I don't think we should sneer too much at Steve Baker. I think he's a good example of somebody who has learned from experience and changed his mind, um, which, you know, in my book is is uh, is probably a good thing. There is an argument for supermajorities in places uh, or in instances uh, like this, but it's very difficult to see it working on a practical level in this instance, not least because I don't think the Belfast Agreement in this instance is, uh, at least is going to be re, uh, reopened. There's very strong arguments for the reform, to my mind, for the reform of uh, of the Belfast uh, Agreement and the reform of the way the institutions work or more frequently don't work uh, in the North. But I find it very difficult to believe that um, uh, you know, that substituting a supermajority for the 50% plus one majority understood under the agreement at present is likely to be on the cards. We actually asked the Taoiseach about this on his way into the summit uh, in Brussels this morning and he, he had a couple of thoughts on it. He said, you know, that he could see the argument for it but, uh, and, and he, he, he said, you know, that if and when a border poll comes, they would much rather see a convincing majority in favour of unification rather than a 50% plus one outcome on it. But he, he, he also said, and this is of course the difficulty you would have to get over in arguing for uh, a supermajority, is that that could mean that the will of a majority of the people was being consistently frustrated. And, and it's very 
hard to see how you would get over that. Interestingly, Taoiseach also said that he thought border poll was quite distant um, in his view. He also said if they were going to win uh, a referendum, if the unity side was going to win a referendum on it, then he said a huge amount of work would have to be done to convince British people or people who identify as British in Northern Ireland that they would be welcome in a new united Ireland. And he said he didn't hear too much about that uh, at the moment. Mm, well, we're definitely going to come back to that subject. But for the moment, we're just going to wrap up as usual by looking at uh, articles that took our fancy. Corporation tax, I usually run a mile and say, let's not discuss corporation tax. But you came across an interesting piece by, uh, by Cliff Taylor, our financial guru, Jen. Only Cliff Taylor could make a corporation tax interesting. And even then it was a stretch. Um, no, he- even though, no, I, I, maybe it's a reflection of my sad life, but I was genuinely interested in this piece yesterday. So he basically was talking about this, um, the European, the EU tax observatory report. And they have a, a report out this week looking at tax evasion. Look, effectively what, it's, what his piece was saying was, in 2014, we collected around 1,000 euro per head um, in the population of, of corporation tax. Now that's up to around 4,500-ish. Um, and it, what this report looked at was the shifting of profits um, to um, countries that are more friendly tax-wise, obviously. And we have had our fair share of being called a tax haven, even though we've signed up to the 15%. I think corporation the EU tax taxes were call, calls us a tax haven. Literally, mm. yeah. But this report was, you know, it has us right up there, obviously, at the top of the EU ta- at the table in terms of European countries um, as receiving the bulk of those of those profits. And the reason why I think it's interesting is because it's going to lead to this conversation about the European budget. And we already know there's moves in the EU to link in some way the amount of excess corporation tax receipts or windfall receipts um, to perhaps paying a larger amount into the, the European budget, which is being heavily resisted here. So what it tells us is that the 15% is not enough. We are still being looked at very jealously um, by the rest of the European Union. This this is not going away effectively. Yeah, I mean, our this is just... The reality of modern Irish life, isn't it, Pat, that the, that we have set up these structures which effectively allow people to uh, warehouse some of their profits through Ireland and, and get tax benefits and Ireland benefits from it as well. And there's always going to be, Jen describes it as jealousy, there's always going to be concerted attempts by other parts of the European Union to claw some of that money back, partly because they think those profits originally were made in their own country. Yeah, and, you know... You've got to say that they they might have a point um, about that. I think Ireland will jealously guard, though, its tax sovereignty on these matters. But the pressure from the pressure from Europe is going to continue to rise, particularly as the EU looks at what it calls own resources. That is, its its own tax raising powers, and it will need to enhance those over the coming years because it's got to start I think 28 or 2028 2029 it has to start repaying all that money that it borrowed uh, during COVID. Remember one of the great departures for the EU during COVID was that it borrowed money under its own name for the first time rather than simply getting money from the uh, the member states but you borrow money you've got to pay it back and uh, so it's going to need the EU is going to need to find further resources from somewhere My pick is an article on a subject which has had no shortage of attention this week I could have picked articles on the subject by Dermot Ferreter um, I, uh, an opinion piece by Cathy Sheridan on Wednesday I could have picked a 
big read in today's newspaper by Kira O'Brien, but I actually settled on a column by Carlin Lillington yesterday about Paddy Cosgrave stepping down as chief executive of the Web Summit following uh, a tweet about uh, about the Israel-Hamas war. And what Carlin points to, um, I, th- I find this very interesting, actually, the way that, that, that it's all panned out. What Carlin points to is the fact that, that the Web Summit and Paddy Cosgrave himself have always been a mass of contradictions. Um, some might say hypocrisies, but let's say contradictions between um, uh, Paddy Cosgrave's campaigning and funding of human rights organisations and certain political positions in Ireland and vociferous criticism of what he sees as cronyism and corruption and various other kinds of malfeasance in the Irish political sphere while being happy enough to deal with all kinds of corporations whose whose own ethics uh, are, are are open to to query not to mention states such as Qatar where I gather uh, a web summit is uh, an offshoot is due to happen soon also not noted necessarily as being among the first ranks of human rights uh, um, providers in in the world and I think she she lays all that out pretty quickly it's it's been an interesting moral tale as somebody who who kind of retired from Twitter um, about three weeks ago and and since I since I have done that uh, I I found myself thinking a bit more about what the hell were we all at for all these years spouting I tried not to tried and failed to be honest not to spout opinions on things um, too much and just use it to kind of have a bit of fun and sometimes tell people that you know we had a podcast up or or whatever else it might be but you know why does everybody feel the need to do this I'm very conscious of this particularly over the last few weeks where I have just seen so many on all sides unsubstantiated but incredibly vociferously expressed opinions about the horrible stuff that's happening that's happening in the Middle East at the moment and I just say to myself why not just put a lid on it and everybody might just inform themselves a bit better. Yeah, the people who I respect the most over the last couple of weeks and uh, are the journalists and otherwise and commentators who admitted straight up that they didn't know enough about the conflict between Israel and Hamas and went off and took some time to properly educate themselves and then spoke about it rather than going on Twitter and saying X, Y, or Z because this is what happened to Paddy Cosgrave. He went on too soon. And like if he said those statements now, I don't know if they'd be that bad. If the you know statements what, themselves are not that exceptional, not really, really. Not in no. the Irish context. No. But you're right. And actually, I used to talk an awful lot of nonsense on Twitter. Some of the shite that I came out with, I really cringe. And Is I it think still there? Do you just take, get rid of it? I'm going to get rid of it straight after this podcast. Um, and I think when Twitter first came along, it, there was a novelty of everyone having their own platform. Everyone had a voice. But now we can see loads of people leaving. And I think we have this time to reflect maybe a little bit more, more maturely as a society, as well as individually, um, about about what that contributes to um, and where it leaves us and how many people have got fired because of stuff they said on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the interesting things about the way this has happened over the last few weeks is because some of this stuff maps onto culture war stuff and traditionally with culture war stuff it's people on the right who say cancel culture is killing the opportunity for for, for for debate and people on the left saying no it's not it's just people being held to account whereas in fact on this one generally it tends to be the other uh, the other way around it's uh, it's people on the left who are getting cancelled like like Paddy Cosgrave have you have you uh, moderated your your Twitter behaviour over the years Pat? 
Uh, no, not really. Um, I kind of, I, I, I don't respond to people. I even responded to Paddy Cosgrave uh, on uh, on Twitter when he's criticised um, some stuff I've written. I just use Twitter to, as I suppose, kind of a news source, although it's less valuable for that now. But also just to much less, just, much less, just valuable. to link to stuff that we publish um, in uh, in the paper. I, I, I don't think that they're. Um, I don't think there's an insatiable appetite uh, out there in in the public to learn my view on everything uh, on 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 every story that's out there at the moment. Maybe I'm wrong uh, about that, but um, I, I kind of have a sense that the public gets enough of my views in the columns and the uh, my columns in the Irish Times than uh, than it does. Although one would say only of uh, Paddy Cosgrave uh, that uh, his his eventual defenestration via Twitter that. Um, as Oscar Wilde said of the death of Little Nell, you'd want a heart of stone not to laugh. <laughs> what was your article this week? Um, there were several articles uh, on uh, on this uh, subject. One including on the the mark the uh, the, the, the the retirement of um, uh, of Johnny Sexton after Ireland's exit, which is hardly uh, uh, hardly unexpected after Ireland's exit from from the World Cup and um, you know sure, he was a, he's a useful 38 did he not, did he not have another he said he's himself now? yeah um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's kind of very, you know very much end of an era stuff for that um, uh, for him maybe for some mm. other guys on that team very uh, very hard to think that you might uh, see uh, come, that you might see um, Peter Mahoney back at the next World Cup a couple of people like that so um uh, yeah, uh, didn't did, didn't end well uh, for everybody. Now we have to watch New Zealand versus South Africa in the final. I mean, who really cares? Um, but I do feel uh, I do feel sorry for for Sexton and for for all those guys. My my great pal Paul Rouse, who writes a lot about the the GAA, once wrote a great uh, piece uh, about you know people who have lost uh, players who've lost an All Ireland final, and he says what they say is that you know for the few days afterwards. You can think of absolutely nothing else, you know, except that you lost the All-Ireland final. And after a few days, then you begin to stop thinking about it all the time. And after a few weeks, you're only thinking about it uh, most of the time. And then time goes on again. And then you're only occasionally thinking about it. But as long as you live, you're never, you've never really forgotten it completely. And I suspect that's the way Johnny Sexton and a lot of those guys will uh, will think about that loss to the All Blacks. But uh, that's sport, I suppose. That's why we love it. On that blunt and cruel note, uh, we will leave it there uh, for uh, for today. Thanks very much to, to Jen and to Pat and our producer, John Casey, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you uh, very soon indeed after the bank holiday weekend. But until then, goodbye and thank you very much for listening.